Welcome, everyone, to the sixth episode of the BTD Podcast. I'm your host, Joseph, and with me are three wonderful guests. Hey, uh, I'm Will. I was baited in the finals of BP Nats. Uh, I don't know, anything else for the intro? Um, hey, I'm Stu. I also debated in the finals at Nats. Hi, I'm Dylan. I was Stu's partner in the finals at Nats as well. Okay, cool. Um, welcome, everyone. It is a pleasure to have you guys. Um, today, we're going to be talking about BP Nationals, which is the reason why you guys are all here. Um, first thing we're going to do is just get to know our guests a little bit better. So um, in any order that you guys want to go in, I want to first ask you guys, how long have you been debating? How did you get started? And uh, what kept you going debating after all these years, years if you've been debating for years? Uh, sure, I can start. Um, I've been debating since grade seven and started debating in Alberta. I got started initially because I thought doing debates sounded really smart and thought it would make me a more capable student later on in high school. And I think over the years, what's kept me going in debate has been just the amount of online competitions and the competition, I'd say, like the competitive spirit of it. Um, just encountering different motions, learning how to deal with them has been really interesting and I've never wanted to stop. Wow, that's really cool. I didn't know you started debating in Alberta. Where did you start debating in Alberta? Um, I went to a school in Calgary called West Island College and I just went to a few debate tournaments within the city and then I went to provincials in grade eight with my sister who didn't want to do debate but no one else did it so I kind of dragged her along um, she she dropped debate soon after that damn that is quite the origin story it is um, I can go next uh, I started doing debate the, the summer after my grade six year at debate camp um, and then continued it at school um, originally, the reason I started debate actually is because um, my mom kind of pushed me into it, if I'm being honest, and I wasn't really that interested at the start. I didn't like it very much, but I kind of grew to love it. Um, I think for me, what keeps me in debate really is, you know, like even though there's all these nerves and there's a lot of pressure and sometimes, it's really the adrenaline rush of being in a round, delivering a speech, trying to engage with teams on POIs. like. Just the adrenaline and the, the confidence that comes from that, it's just a really hard feeling to escape for me. Yeah, and for reference, Stu and Dylan are debate partners who now go to the York School. They're also in grade 12 now each. They're in grade 12 now, right? Yeah. Okay, cool. Yep. Which would mean that they've been debating for five and like six years respectively. So that is a very, very long time. Uh, Will, how about you? Uh, well, as I've heard in like the, the debate community terminology, uh, you would call yourself a bit of a debate dino because I've been debating since like grade three, technically. Uh, and I started in like a homeschool club. Uh, so like, it's not like I was seriously good when I was younger, but I kind of started seriously maybe three or four years ago. Um, I got started in debate because my brother joined the club and there was like another another uh, kid there who was like my age. So we somehow were able to sneak into tournaments at like grades three and four, which is uh, pretty fun. And yeah, I think debate, yeah, it's been really fun for me to continue. I'm in grade 11 now. Uh, so we've been debating for, for about eight years. Wow, that is, that is, I think, longer than anyone else that we've had on so far. Very, very nice. Very good to have you. And uh, if you guys want to give any brief shout outs to who have been most impactful on your debating career, feel free to do that now. 
Um, um, I would give a shout out to Noah, Noah Pino. Um, I was exposed to some of his crazy motions, really high level IR motions in grade nine. I, I felt so unprepared, but um, going into lessons with him, tutoring sessions, two hours long after school, on weekends, in the morning, in the night, he sort of showed me the ropes of debate and sort of educated me in a way that I could not have gotten from school or like YouTube or any other way. And he definitely pushed me to become the best debater possible. So Noah, huge shout out that your lessons were incredible. Yeah, I'd also shut him out because um, he coached me from since I was in grade seven to when I was in grade 11 because uh, he just left our school last year. Uh, so I've had a really long time with him, but also other coaches that we've had at our school have been really impactful. Um, Mia Feldman, R.P. Yang, and uh, this year, Eamon Roach. Uh, I would I would say uh, Wendy James uh, from Saskatchewan, as well as her daughters, Lauren and Anwin. I've gotten coaching from all of them, uh, which has been like really, really helpful, especially when I was younger. Uh, and also Sahazra and Isabel, who also competed at Nats, who I've gone to numerous Worlds tournaments with. Uh, so they've been really, really good for improvement and just helping each other out. Uh, yeah. Cool, cool. Thanks a lot for your stories. I hope you guys get to make many more in your last year or two of debating in high school. It's a great time. So uh, the reason that we are all here is to go over BP Nats. I just want to start off by asking you guys how you guys felt about the tournament overall, how you guys felt holistically about the motions, how it was run. Uh, anyone want to start us off? Sure, I could start us off. Um, I loved the motions of this tournament. Uh, usually, Stu and I do very terribly with things like philosophy motions that are kind of big abstract ideas. And there wasn't a lot of them at this tournament. There was a lot of practical policy-based motions, a lot of this house would, and uh, even the this house believes that once were essentially policy motions. And uh, we really liked that. There's a lot of political ones. We are very engaged in politics and love debating about that. And I loved the motions that were at this tournament. Oh, I would say, yeah, I'll go next. Um, I thought the tournament was run really, really well, especially for like being the first in-person tournament that CSDF has run in like three years. Uh, overall, my experience was like awesome at the tournament, like meeting lots of debaters who I had been acquainted with online, but you really never like talk with people. And if anything, it's like just chatting with them briefly in Discord or hitting them in rounds continuously. So it was nice to be able to like see everyone in person and make a lot of new friends too. Uh, and as for the motions, uh, I'm pro like pretty much the opposite of Dylan in that way, in that I hate and I'm very bad at social narrative motions and like philosophy motions, but I really love policy motions. So the tournament was kind of tuned to the motions that are in my wheelhouse. Alrighty, glad to hear that it was. Glad to hear that it was so uh, fun to see everyone in person again. It's really what I found really nice about Nats is like being able to see people from like across the country, especially knowing that there's not very many times where people from Alberta, BC, Saskatchewan, um, all come together to actually debate in one place. And it was I was very lucky to have it be in Montreal, where I can justify spending a weekend coming to judge you guys too. So that was really fun for me as well. So uh, I think that. The organization was also quite good. Um, thought the motions overall were pretty good. I was pretty happy with most of them, I think. And I think that leads us into talking about each of them specifically. So let's go over round one first. Round one was This House Believes That, Heads of State in Democratic Nations. 
uh, and de facto heads of states in those nations, should be limited to one term in office. Anyone want to start us off on your case, how you felt about the motion, um, and what you think were like interesting arguments that you saw or think could be run? Uh, sure, I can start us off. Um, this was round one, and Will, uh, I think Stu and I hit you and your partner in this round. Uh, we were opening opposition. Uh, Will and, and your partner were, C, were CG, or C, yep. CO, sorry. Um, besides us getting locked out of the room for five minutes of our prep, I think overall the round was pretty interesting. I know for Stu and I on OO, we talked about populist politics and how populist leaders... Um, are uniquely benefited by having multiple terms in office. Um, we talked about things like buy-in from different voters, how you know when you're a grassroots politician, you need to go around knocking on people's doors, building trust over time. And um, if you're ever going to change something as a progressive populist politician, you're going to need multiple terms. Uh, and people are going to want you to have multiple terms to actually get things done. So we kind of took that angle, and our case was very contingent on that sort of uh, on that sort of frame. And that definitely was a point of contention debate. Uh, but yeah, that's kind of what the OO case was for me and Stu. I'm sure Stu has more to say on that. Yeah, I kind of agree with Dylan. Um, I think what the biggest weakness in our case was, and we did hear this from our judge too, is at least for me personally, I kind of do have a tendency to sometimes debate like within my political ideology. So like I'm a leftist, uh, like just in my personal opinions. And sometimes um, if I'm being a bit lazy, I'll impact like, oh, we get like more leftist leaders elected, we get like more Bernie Sanders candidates, which to me, like, I don't have to prove to myself why I think that's a good thing. But like in a debate, you have to prove why we want anti-corruption, like why we want candidates who are like going to pass things like more healthcare and things like that. Right. So I think the biggest weakness in our case was like, we definitely proved why we're probably going to get more populist leaders. But we could have spent more time proving why we want populist leaders. Yeah, and I think that when you say populist, like what strikes in my mind is like it's like populism kind of on both ends. So I think there's like right wing and left wing populism. Um, and I realize that you guys are talking about populism in like the good, the quote unquote good left wing sense. But uh, did you did that part come up in the debate? Like right wing populism, things like that, or or not so much. It came up in the very. Uh, one-off refutation kind of way from the DPM. Uh, the DPM basically said, what about Trump? <laughs> and then moved on. So yeah. uh, it didn't, I wouldn't say take down the whole OO case. In fact, I think they could have pushed back more on that. Uh, it was mainly just asserted that right-wing populism exists. Therefore, their case is bad because it allows them to exist. But I don't think that the impacting was necessarily there to take down a lot of our case and framing. But um yeah, I think that that was a, a big issue. And also, a problem that I did want to mention was uh, in our case strategy, we actually preempt. We tried to we tried to preempt the OG and CG case. The way we did that was completely wrong. We said that there's going to be anti-corruption. We thought that the immediate, uh, obvious, intuitive idea is to say that having more term, having more terms in office, inherently lends itself to more corruption and more lack of representation, things like that. We preempted that for like two minutes of my speech and no gov team even talked about it. So that was kind of irrelevant and probably didn't do much for a case as well on OO. Wait, when you say multiple terms is more is more prone to corruption, isn't that your side that's more prone to corruption or am I missing something here? 
Uh, no, you're not missing anything. We just wanted to preempt that. We thought OG was going to say to us, or oh, CG was going to say oh. to us, your side is more corrupt, oh, right? I so see. we're like, oh, it, it would be super strategic if we ran a point that preempted that, but we they never said that. So we preempted nothing, basically, <laughs> which didn't really help us out. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I Yeah, I don't know if I would go for preempting that out of OO if, if, if OG doesn't talk about it, and CG doesn't, indi- CG doesn't indicate that they're going to try to talk about it either. Uh, Will, how about your side of the same debate round? Yeah, it was actually interesting to hit Dylan's two first round because I knew they were a good team. Uh, like obviously broken at both Nats, so I was pretty nervous hitting them. Uh, but correct me if my memory isn't the best because I have a tendency to forget past rounds that I've done, especially on Friday. Uh, but I believe our extension, uh, and my partner, gave the, Rafay, gave the extension on... Uh, how we get more long-term policy uh, and how policy can be obstructed if multiple leaders are swapping places, even if they're from the same party. So we extended a lot on that on on closing opposition, and it turned out to be a pretty decent extension. Uh, yeah, overall, I think I was pretty happy with how the, we ran the case. We left ourselves kind of open to CG because I kind of forgot to deal with the CG extension, so that could have been very problematic, but Overall, I thought the debate was like it was pretty high quality for a first round and for everyone's. I don't. At least it was my first in-person debate. I don't know about everyone else, but yeah, I thought it was decent overall. Yeah, that sounds like a very very good extension. Um, it looks like on my tab sheet that uh, that was also the winning extension in that round, with the right left wing policy stuff coming second. But uh, I think that makes sense, uh, especially if you like kind of weigh it over. I think you can talk about why that's super important. I think that. Uh, that's definitely a good case out of out of closing up as well. Um, in terms of the government case, what do you guys perceive to be like the strongest government case you can run in this round? Um, well, we didn't really have any strong gov teams. In, or that's kind of that sounds mean, but we didn't have very, very experienced gov teams in a round. Let's put it that way. Um, but I think if I had to run a gov case, because like Dylan said, we were kind of trying to preempt on OO. So I think if you took the idea that we were trying to preempt about corruption, I think there's good analysis that you could do about how, like, because this debate is really about, I think, developing democracies more than anything else. I think there's definitely ideas about how the more terms that a leader has in office in a weak democracy, the more they're, they have an ability to, like, build things like alliances with people in power, like generals, people in government, people in, like, less transparent government institutions, the more that you build those relationships, the more likely you are to be able to like usurp an election, stay in office pass when the constitution says you're able to and things like that. Like essentially the idea of corruption. I would agree with that case. Uh, If my opinion counts, I would say that this debate is definitely opposition heavy uh, and that I don't think there's too much content that either uh, OG or CG could run. Luckily, the OG team wasn't like, as Stu put it, the most experienced team in the round. So CG was able to, or yeah, CG was able to come up with an extension. But I would say, yeah, very similar case to corruption. You could also discuss content related to, you know, how oftentimes in these nations, uh, like OG talked about a popularity contest and uh, how leaders are get elected because they're most well known. So there's some content there as well. But I, I generally want to debate on a side, kind of tunnel vision on that side, and can't think of preemptive, which is kind of an issue. So I don't have too much to add there. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I think that 
there's also uh content to be added about yeah content to be added about like why i think i think that the the central idea on this uh and let me know your thoughts on this is the fact that when you have people that have multiple terms in offices in office the additional um the additional um elections that happen after their first are more or less skewed towards them in a way that means that you don't actually get the best policy so if you look at the vast majority of elections um for example like at where I'm, I'm from mississauga in ontario where you have like the mississauga election where you have like the same the, the mayor who's been serving for like 20 years in a row or 25 years in a row basically they have a huge amount of a com- incumbent advantage because everyone knows their name everyone is familiar with their face everyone is generally happy with what they do even if that might not be the best uh, that they might not be the person that's best for getting policy across or for being able to um, do a significant amount of uh, change uh, especially so given that they have so much incumbent advantage that comes from recognition and connections and stuff, it's probably good to limit the amount that they can run so that you have increasingly involving, uh, evolving policy and stuff to actually reflect the world that, uh, and the reflect the world that exists and the problems that you might want to solve. And I think that op can kind of run the idea of like the opposite, which is basically just that like you have um, experience and having the experience means that you know how to work within your council, work within your parliament to actually get things across. And I think that's also a useful point that you can add too. And uh, we have one person lurking in the call who wants to add something. You want you want to say what it is, How? So I agree with what Dylan's do and Boyd. Uh, okay, let me stop. <laughs> I agree with <laughs> I agree with what Dylan's do and will have already said about running corruption as an argument on government. And I think a really strong framing that would really help strengthen the impact of that argument is to talk about how this debate also applies in developing countries or like countries that have a new. Um, de- uh, democracy that has just started up um, and that's what our CO did to run their own argument but I think it would be especially har- helpful for the corruption um, argument on government because then you can argue how often in these new democracies there is no accountability system that is set in place to make sure that there is no corruption that exists um, also just because often in these democracies that are quite new it relies on getting consistent public legitimacy and insofar as there's corruption you're likely going to have a larger impact of maybe decreasing the power that democracy has in the future but yeah I think corruption is quite a good argument especially on um, CG uh, especially if you use that framing as well yeah that makes sense I, I didn't think about that watching the round because I didn't get to judge this round as uh, in the senior I judged the junior round instead but yeah uh, I think that those are good cases uh, that you should definitely be running, especially on extension. Okay, cool. Um, any final thoughts on round one? Yeah, I just wanted to uh, echo something that Howe was saying about uh, new democracies. I also think term limits can be framed as this easy way, very accessible way for a new democracy to implement some form of stability. It's very easy to just say, um, you know, uh, a president, a prime minister, whatever, cannot run in multiple terms, which is a pretty easy way to stop things like corruption. Like you don't need to invest vast amounts of political or monetary capital into preventing something from happening, uh, maybe more so than other forms of accountability systems. But I also want to be fair to our gov team in our round, because I know we kind of make it out to be that they were a little less experienced. But I think there are ideas on, um, you get a more focus of policy and the leader of the party becomes sort of unimportant, sort of this anti-populist point. And I think that if you did specifically recognize why in their world 
people tend to focus more on policy and not the leader and not the parties itself, not Republican or Democrat, why that produces sort of a better political environment. And you could also lose things like uh, strong party discipline, where it's like Trudeau's party in Canada. The Liberal Party kind of follows what Trudeau says. They have this strong focus on their leader. Uh, it could produce more independent thought in things like uh, parliamentary democracies like here in Canada. I think that, that could be sort of an interesting thing, more representation for smaller communities that often have incentives that sort of misalign with the broader liberal establishment or something like that. I don't know. I don't think their idea was entirely out of the debate. I just think it could have been mechanized better and it could have been interesting. I'll just add that I definitely agree with that. I don't think that they were the worst team. They had very, very good ideas in the round. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Alrighty, let's head on over to round two. So um, round two had an info slide. The info slide was, community reliance is a way of structuring financial and emotional support systems such that the primary source of support for an individual is other individuals within their community. This can be contrasted with reliance on the state, privatized services, and or oneself. The motion was, this house supports a shift towards community reliance. So before you guys go into the cases that you guys ran and that you thought were strong, I wanted to get your opinion on the kind of premise of the motion and how what you thought about it. Okay, so uh, I personally did not think that this was a good motion. I thought the motion itself could have worked, but I think the issue was the info slide kind of contradicts what the concept of the motion is. The info slide talks about how you know, your primary support source of support is an individual. Uh, so either state privatized services or oneself, but then you're also debating on the other side that you're talking about community reliance. And the issue is that, at least in my opinion, community reliance can include things like the state and like businesses and individual reliance can be characterized as self-reliance, right? And I think with the info slide crossing those kinds of ideas in the round just made it very, very difficult, especially for me and my partner in prep. We legit sat there for a good 10 minutes just in silence trying to process what the motion actually meant. So I think we were very, very lucky in that round we got uh, back half. I also, oh, you can go, Stu. I also just think that, I mean, I guess it depends how your round goes, but at least in our round, there was an issue of the motions kind of going in two directions because I think financial and emotional support systems are two different ideas, um, especially like it's unclear if it's focusing on state privatized services and our oneself, that's not really as much of an like emotional impact. So I think just like if the motion was more specifically just about like financial community reliance, I think it would make more sense. Yeah, uh, for me personally, aside from like the obvious um, wide range of topics that the motion brings and invites us to talk about, I think what Stu and I kind of identified in our prep, and we were CEO, so we had lots of time to just discuss the implications of the motion, is that at any level in this motion, you experience uh, individuals in uh, the world of community reliance in this shift experience, to some extent, uh, some removal of personal autonomy and personal thought. That's to say that you go to a friend when you're feeling upset. That's to say that you, when you have like a wound or something, you go to a community doctor or someone that knows medicine rather than a hospital. Like you're kind of uh, removing the agency from yourself and putting it onto your community, which we, which Stu and I used uh, to make a, I, I think, a very creative extension in the round that that gave us the one. Very interesting. All right, let's hear about that extension then. 
it was a weird one. It was uh, it was a title. The title of our extension was uh, simply called "Gangs and Churches," <laughs> and and <laughs> I know that sounds weird because it because it was. Uh, but we we isolated the debate and centered it around very economically deprived communities, and we said that when you shift, when this shift happens, it's not going to be to loose, unstructured things like maybe your friends or just like a figure. It's not going to be like that because people have a tendency to go to something that's structured, like an institution. And then we looked at what institutions are established in very, very economically deprived communities. That's things like religion, and that's things like gangs, not because they want to inherently do crime or are inherently religious, but because that is sort of the uh, born out of desperation. So these are the types of institutions that will likely be centered and already pre-established in the communities because the state doesn't really have incentives to invest in new things like social clubs or uh, or more structured things like that. Uh, and then we looked at how they will be exploitative during this switch when people are surrendering, surrendering some degree of their personal autonomy and thought. How will these institutions exhibit exploitative tendencies to perhaps keep the community economically deprived, i.e. in the case of gangs, or keep the community ideologically centered and rooted in things like religion, which can be problematic for certain groups, which I'm sure Stu can elaborate on. Yeah, because we were also able to do like a gov best case weighing with our frame because we're like, okay, even if you have these communities where they're not economically exploitative, you like have community cooperation in a financial sense. Okay, well, maybe you're like a gay person living in a Mormon community. Even if you're getting economic benefit from this like community centralization, the economic benefit is contingent on you like buying into the Mormon church that doesn't allow you to be gay, etc. So like, even if it works in a financial sense, we can still win on the fact that like, there are contrasting ideologies and that just centralization as a whole in these communities is probably harmful. One question on that extension, um, what would be the exact harms? Like, were you guys saying that the government, like the government would be a better like the government or yourself would be a better um, source to rely on rather than your your communities? Or is that not the thesis of the argument? Yeah, that came up in our round. Basically, the way that we addressed that. So I think it was Jin Zhu. He ran an uh, or he had some sort of refutation to us, basically on the idea of like talking about minority communities um, and how they are targeted by the government, and especially in like developing democracies where you have like ethnic tensions. The way we basically weighed that out is like it's true and like yes we don't have a perfect situation on our side of the house especially with oppressive governments but like in a government system at least what you have is you have things like constitutions you have things like a system of courts even if they're not perfect it's better than what you're going to have in like if a gang has a lot of autonomy in a region or if a church has a lot of autonomy in a region because these institutions don't have the kinds of even if it's flawed kinds of democracy court system constitutions things like this that do at some level at least protect minority rights oh that makes a lot of sense that makes a lot of sense oh and before we go to the next thing Stu, can you like put your discord on do not disturb so we don't hear like the notification thing in the recording oh, wait let me just test if that fixes it wait wait i'm in your mic Stu. okay that fixes it cool perfect dylan do you want to add something um, I think Stu pretty much covered it, but uh, I do want to add that that idea of constitutional recognition was important in the debate, i.e. if the government isn't perfect, at least they have things like uh, guaranteed minimums in some cases. 
Uh, an important thing in our debate that I'd like to note is that open and government defined it to Western liberal democracies specifically. And I think that that, as the judge pointed out, was limiting in some cases, because often in places, as uh, Jin pointed out in his extension on CG, uh, in places like Iran, uh, for specific communities like for women, um, community reliance is so, so important when the state is actively oppressing you and preventing you from getting certain things like healthcare, like education, like emotional support. Uh, so I think that it was fairly easy for us as CEO to kind of stand out in the round because the Gov cases were kind of in this sort of murky water of, of the of the framing of the round. And we were able to capitalize on that, I think. So it was it was a little bit of a messy round from the Gov side, but I think on CO and OO to some extent, we had a pretty clear frame to work under, which definitely helped us in the round. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That's a very cool extension that I never even thought of. Um, I think that there's like reasonable content you can run on the gov side under that very premise too. Just explaining that like, look, gangs and churches provide unique, unique services where where people otherwise would be neglected, and that's why they're shifting towards them. Something along those lines would be, I think, really cool too. Uh, Will, how about your side's case? So yeah, we uh, pulled CG in this round, and. The round was kind of set up fairly messily. Uh, so a lot of the characterizations in the round just weren't working. So in the extension, Rafay was able to clear up a lot of the characterizations. And the main premise of our extension was essentially that, you know, you have lots of poor people and suffering people that the debate has been focusing on thus far, right? But the idea is there's also other actors in this debate, like people who are more wealthy or who are, you know, more financially well off. And if they're functioning on a system of you know, government support or individual support or uh, market support often don't feel like they have a responsibility to their neighbors or to those around them, right? So the framing was essentially, if this is a societal narrative that you have to have community reliance, the richer and more well-off individuals will be much more willing to donate to local causes or help out their neighbors if, like, for example, their house burns down, right? So we kind of took the round and said, hey, there's a lot of struggling people in this round, but like who actually is able to get more like financial support? Uh, so I think the extension ran fairly well and it, it was a good round for half clarity, especially in like a murky social narrative motion. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. That's pretty That's pretty clear too. Uh, and that sounds pretty effective, pretty, pretty direct. Um, if I were to say anything about how the round that I watched when I actually judged how and Liz debate this one. Um, I think that I think that there's fairly yeah, there's fairly clear and important things that I think are definitely important to do, which are just like one, characterizing where the shift is really occurring, um, and then using that to your advantage, particularly on government. So I think that people are shifting towards community reliance exactly where they're where it's insufficient right now where government support or privatized service support is insufficient and i think that talking exactly about like look there are these places that governments don't take care of properly or that individual corporations or individual corporations don't serve very well these are the places that people are moving towards 
like community kinds of alliance, and that's where particularly this is useful. I think that doing that kind of framing helps make your case way, way easier to run, rather than having to compare yourselves against like a government who has way, way more resources than um, than the community and uh, losing because it's just difficult to prove why communities will have any ability to do stuff better than governments. They probably can't, but the governments probably don't care enough, is I think the thesis of, of better gov cases. I'm not roasting your case, Hal. I thought it was good. I thought it was a good case. Yeah, well, speaking of which, I actually agree with what you said about the framing. I think the framing is actually super important for the gov case. Because, like, if you let opposition just run that communities cannot replace necessary infrastructure like healthcare or, like, providing water and food for, like, impoverished communities, then you're kind of just, like, screwed on proposition. So I think it's really important to clarify that necessary infrastructure that communities cannot replace will likely be provided for by governments. And I think the mechanism for that is just to say that often there's a lot of social awareness or backlash when governments do not provide communities with the absolute necessary infrastructure. And then you just frame the debate on the less necessary infrastructure, but is still generally good for communities to thrive on. So things like maybe libraries, having like education resources, or having things like sports teams, stuff like that. And I kind of, I think it's more strategic of that um, to run with propositions case. Um, although you do kind of minimize your impacts, I think it's better or easier to win um, with that framing. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Anyone got anything last to talk about for round two? All right, let's move on to round three. The IUCN defines a protected area as a clearly defined geographical space recognize, dedicated, and manage through legal or other effective means to achieve the long-term conservation of nature. Examples include national parks and marine protected areas. This house would require the construction of protected areas and their proposed management plans to be approved by a majority vote of the local community. Anyone want to open us off on what they thought about this motion and perhaps their case. Sure. Uh, Stu and I definitely thought the motion was interesting. And by this point in the tournament, we were going up against some really, really uh, competitive people. So we were a bit a bit nervous. We haven't seen them in person before. But uh, as, as it pertains to the motion, we immediately wanted to expand the info slide. We agreed that it was taking place in national parks and marine life areas and things like that. But we also thought of places like Central Park in New York, where its construction was very problematic, where they displaced uh, minority communities, uh, those who are economically and politically disenfranchised, just bulldozed over them to put this massive protected area park in an urban city. So we, wa we wanted to take our case in two directions. We were open in government, so we kind of had the freedom to sort of frame. I had lots of time in my PM speech to do that. Um, we said that, yes, larger parks like Yosemite and... Uh, and Banff National Park and things like that are definitely considered and should be noted in this debate, and we had a whole point on them. But we also wanted to note that in a very urbanized world, uh, a lot of protected areas are being placed in cities and in metropolitan areas that often will displace communities. So we, we definitely wanted to focus on that, and we really tried to argue that frame, and it definitely stood throughout the round, and our, and our judge uh, judges bought it. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, that is a super cool idea. Like, I was trying to figure out how exactly you can get that to be runnable. 
And I think that it's just a matter of twisting the idea of what long-term conservation of nature is. If you frame it as like, this is nature, this is green space. Um, yeah, if this is nature, this is green space. Uh, then it is the case that it falls under this motion and therefore communities should um, be able to have a vote on it. I listened to a podcast of, uh, about that exact topic from 99% Invisible and they, they go into a lot of the depth on just how harmful the construction of Central Park uh, was to like black like people in the black community who literally had their houses taken away with no compensation um, and were then later compensated with like a name change and but none of the money ever returned um and the fact that that was done in a way that like used a lot of government power to do um is probably exactly what this motion is getting at and i think that that'd be a clear a clear win for government um on that case um anyone want to go about their case as well so yeah this motion was actually rather unfortunate uh for me and Rafay. Because uh, we got OO on this case, and I'd just like to make a personal note. Okay, I was thinking, hey, it's best to join, like, make arguments with uh, with cue cards, right? Because then you can flow them properly. It did not go well at all. Uh, I don't think the case would have gone too well for us, anyways, because we didn't have the best OO case. But essentially, the case we ran was that a lot of the times, you know, the environment can always be considered over the economy. And you run the very, very simple framing of, you know, in 20 or 30 years, this community is going to be underwater. They're going to be over polluted. So it doesn't matter if they make like short term economic choices, which we framed as, you know, communities are very, very likely to make these short term choices, right? They're more worried about putting food on the table or, you know, how they can send their children to university. So oftentimes, if their industries rely on these environments being destroyed and being taken over by businesses, they're much more likely to make a vote for that to happen, right? So we basically frame that all of these communities are going to you know, not vote for the environment, they're going to vote for the economy and, you know, turn down whatever government managed plans or ever are going to occur. And essentially talked about how that's ultimately going to harm the environment and therefore these communities in the long term. And the case itself was okay, but we also hit very, very good teams in that round. Uh, and we did take the third. I believe Hauna was with like, the first in that round. Uh, I don't know how the other rankings panned out, but yeah, overall, I thought the motion as a, as a whole was decent. We just didn't run the best case. It certainly does feel a little bit more intuitive um, on on government. Like the people that live there should should be able to determine how the land around them is being managed. Um, I think that there's good um, analogies you can make to like indigenous um, people as well, and how a lot of their land has been taken away for the reasons of quote unquote nature conservation or things like that. Um, and why it's the case that it's probably bad to forcefully take land away from people that may be crucially valuable to them. Um, and I think that there's good good content you can run to also challenge the premise of people will only vote for the economy when they themselves will be the ones that suffer from pollution or from other things if the nature isn't actually conserved there. So I think that there's probably better cases that you can run on government compared to opposition though i do think the opposition certainly has a few things that they could uh that they could run as like strong harms to this um in will and Rafay's defense i actually really like their case i think this motion is kind of well slightly gov tilted in the sense that government doesn't really need to prove that these people will agree to pass these uh, like create these economic safety places or protected land um, because they can just argue that to the people you give them a leveraging power when they otherwise wouldn't have that power. 
whatever. And I guess you can try and prove that they will want to like vote for this uh, environmentally protected land, but it's not necessary. That's not necessary for them to like actually win the debate, um, as long as they weigh why the people's choice is important. Um, also, Joseph, do you have any idea for like how the government team can land the principle as to why people deserve a right to choose what is in their land? Because it's technically not theirs, right? Like people don't have the right to choose which companies come into your neighborhoods or whatnot. So I, I don't know. Elizabeth and I didn't run the principle. Like if there is a way to mechanize the principle, I think it's really strong. Yeah, so I think that um, you can. I think that there's basically two things that you would need to establish. One, you'd want to establish why it's the case that the people who live there are probably the ones who have, like, I don't know, in some way built up the land, or uh, or like built up the land, or built up the community of uh, that surrounds the land, for example. Um, and I think that the only thing I don't think you need to prove that they do have the right to it now but just that it would that they should have the right to that land so for example i don't know i think that you you want to intuition pump using indigenous people probably for uh for uh, to to like make the strongest case for why they why people should have claims to the land but i think that you can do that by talking about how they are the ones who um one directly care for the land by making sure like i don't know those communities probably make sure that there's not too many invasive species they're probably the ones who regulate their own communities to not dump too much like nitrogen fertilizer or whatever into those pieces of land as well to make sure that other people from outside this, those communities um aren't able to come in and like degrade the quality of the land that they that they live on right so given that they're the ones who are actively preserving those lands so that they are habitable and so that they can inhabit them themselves they probably deserve to have have the right to um they probably deserve to have the right to stop the government from doing things that they believe is harmful uh to the land uh if if they do in, in those cases believe that it is harmful um in the case where they're trying to like build nature reserves you can kind of just like briefly characterize why this can be uh, against people's interests and why people should why people who live there should have the final say on whether or not this is actually something that they want to do i think i would try to um, frame it like that, and then say so that the government has an obligation to um, give people the right to control the land that they live on because people have the right to, um, people have the right to, I don't know, um, live in a space that is not infringed on overly uh, excessively by other people, and then as a result, they should have the ability to control. It. I don't know. I would probably try to phrase that a little bit differently than I just did, but I think that going off of those ideas would probably be. Um, fairly strong to try to prove that principle mm -hmm. makes sense though i'm not the best person at principles you could maybe ask someone else too for that yeah Stu and i are also not the best people at principles and like how we were averse to running it uh on opening government we ended up going with two points one on uh more electoral power for vulnerable communities who you know, if they're trying to lobby against a development, especially in, in any community, really, they would have to go to things like town halls, maybe even fly into Ottawa to lobby the Senate or something like that. There's just no way that an average working class person can do that and participate politically to resist more so than, say, like in a suburb where maybe uh, one person in the family is not working and can do that all day. One election is much easier politically for people to participate to decide the future of their community. That was kind of our first point. 
But then second, and I think this is uh, definitely our most interesting stuff on opening government, is this idea of uh, politic. it's politically easy to develop. Uh, and I think, Joseph, you mentioned this, but we sort of framed this development, especially in urban areas, as a form of gentrification. That's to say that uh, seemingly progressive politicians can take this as a politically easy way to gentrify poor communities to place a park, which, you know, the vast majority of voters who aren't in that area would see that as a win for the environment or a win for tourism and making their city uh, feel more desirable. But uh, and it's also generally cheaper than perhaps making a district uh, like a financial district, elevating the property taxes in that way. And uh, yeah, we basically talked about the harms of gentrification in this debate and framed it like that. And I think that that was uh, an interesting frame that we ran on OG. And I don't think people were expecting that, I'd say, uh, especially not OO. Yeah. Yeah. One thing on odd there is, especially in like, you know, with the Qatar World uh, World Cup coming up, you can maybe run a cool extension there, or just add on to the case that lots of times, you know, different government, like federal governments will sport wash or greenwash their communities. A lot of times, you know, run their community to the ground for, for certain events. Uh, so just, just a cool example or something that could be inserted in there. Oh yeah, yeah. If I hear, if I hear like this will allow black people to make sure that the New York government or the New York state government doesn't build over their houses and use eminent domain to build parks, um, that are mostly ra- racially motivated, like on op, I would, I, I wouldn't know what, 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 what the heck I'm supposed to say. Um, I would probably try to explain why this is not this is this is not actually the long per- long term preservation of nature, and try to frame it out of the round. But otherwise, it's just it's it, it's like you can't like mitigate that argument more or less. Like you just have to explain why it doesn't apply in the round. Um, but yeah, very very clever framing. If you if you don't have the the guts to just challenge the underlying premise and the relevancy to the motion, I think I think you just lose to that because it's just too intuitively good and important. Anyone got any final thoughts on round three? Alrighty, let's move on to round four. Round four was this house believes that the feminist movement should attempt to reform existing conceptions of gender roles as opposed to harming or as opposed to attempting to deconstruct them entirely. Anyone got any uh, thoughts on the motion as a whole and your cases? Um, I guess I can go for us. Uh, this was kind of a yikes for us. Um, <laughs> we took a four. We tried to like, I don't know. We didn't really have a good conception of what the motion even really meant or what the change was from side to side. So we kind of just tried to run this like buy-in argument about like people who are like sort of apathetic to feminism and the status quo then we got turf burned by our opening half and then we just like because we already had a weak extension going in and then that extension was turf burned and then we just tried to like talk <laughs> dylan always says we ran like an andrew tate extension because we're like <laughs> we were trying to talk about how like i don't even want to say it out loud because it sounds so stupid when i explain it to this but we're trying to talk about like buy-in from like more people who are like kind of apathetic or like maybe even sympathetic to like misogyny and like, oh, maybe they're more moderated in this mode. I don't know, something like that. Um, but yeah, clearly it didn't land. Which side were you again? We were CG. closing. CG. Yeah, CG is rough. Yeah, yeah it was rough. And um, the, uh, the thesis of our case uh, was 
many things, but one of the things that it was was OO tried to claim that the feminist movement would kind of lead to, under their world, would lead to this negotiation of what gender means and allow people to question their own gender in a lot of ways. Uh, men, women, uh, everyone, basically. We were trying to say that uh, men's rights activist groups, these sort of Andrew Tate-loving, Elon Musk-loving groups, the, the, the fundamental basis of their group is that gender roles exist. So if the feminist movement is using that, in a lot of ways, they won't even be open to any sort of negotiation with them or any sort of uh, path forward, and there'll be sort of this hostility. But if the feminist movement agrees with them on that one premise that there are gender roles, it's what you make of them. That's when sort of that that's when those types of men start to consider what it means to be a man and consider their own gender more. But that was clearly not the most effective frame or way to go about that motion on CG, uh, and we learned a lot from all the other teams in that round, I think. We had a pretty similar government case as a whole. Uh, we were OG in the round. And we ran the idea that essentially the feminist movement has, the, you know, the primary, one of the primary, I wouldn't say like the only, but one of the primary purposes for why it was established was to, you know, increase rights for women, uh, increase you know, equality of opportunity for women in our society. So generally the idea is that when you completely deconstruct all of these gender norms, uh, you leave yourself open to principled attacks on essentially what the purpose of the feminist movement then becomes. And we kind of argued that lots of women still face issues in our society and that the feminist movement still needs, needs to take like a very direct approach to trying to go after those issues as opposed to, you know, retransforming what gender, what like gender roles and gender actually means in our society as a whole. We also talked about like buy-in from other individuals as well. <laughs> I didn't use the example of Andrew Tate, though I believe it did come up in the debate eventually. Uh, I essentially just used like an example of a generic potato farmer in Idaho. <laughs> and Eric also ran with it in the round for some reason as well, and so did Jinju. So I guess it was a pretty decent example. But Will, that's like, yeah, we I totally agree with you, Will. And another thing that we said on CG, or what we tried to say, is that because men are the ones that we try to frame it as that men are the ones that propagate gender rules and gender norms in society. So these are the ones in, in some respects that the feminist movement needs to target if they're ever going to get change within how those gender rules sort of manifest in society. I.e. if you have a feminist movement that is denouncing gender as a whole, men have a lot to lose from that and might not accept that and might become more hostile. Like we're basically saying that in some ways you have to reformulate gender rules um, because there's kind of no other way to stop propagating the harmful ones you should probably just start propagating the good ones under an inherently patriarchal society but i think that that was fairly uh was dealt with fairly effectively by rco which i believe was how and elizabeth and uh in some ways preempted by oo so we were getting smoked from both angles uh on our opposing bench yeah, that makes sense. It's it, it's definitely rough being opening on this one because you're not exactly sure how... Well, I think that you're not exactly sure how you should characterize what the difference is. And you're kind of not... It, it takes a while to figure out exactly what the difference in messaging between the two sides are. I think from government, the best stuff you can talk about is uh, how... Yeah, it, is how people are still likely to 
have gender roles and people believe at a fundamental level that there are roles that um, people have um, that people have for for men and women for example and by trying to reform them um, yeah by reforming them you're basically taking advantage of a system that people probably have at least some desire to want to change right now so for example um, women have been quite uh quite fast to adopt like we are like we don't just do things to serve men right we are not just submissive to men for example i think you can kind of run similar framing in the reverse as well right so many men have long had grievances of not being able to be emotionally open if you take a look at like the suicide rate and like the rate of depressions among men it's like definitely really is quite high and not good right and part of that stems from the expectations of like toxic gender roles that are that are put upon men by men themselves which means that there's probably a desire for people to accept these uh changes and what it means to be um a proper man for example right so um probably facilitating more healthy uh uh more healthy narratives um is probably useful here i think additionally um you also don't need to explain that this is um, existing in a vacuum, right? So I think that you can fully acknowledge that people that people generally hold the traditional gender norms in their head, right? And the result of this is is that the government side doesn't need to argue that we're going to try to own like only still have like the, the the purpose of having that framing is that op can't get away with saying well there will be no gendered expectations because like bs if the feminist movement can actually deconstruct the entirety of gender um they they can probably de-emphasize its importance to the people that they can reach but it's probably not the case that they can get rid of it completely so if you just try to deconstruct it the people like most people are still going to believe in um most people are still going to believe in like some form of like traditional gender roles. However, on government, you probably have some kind of countervailing narrative. Yeah, the countervailing narrative ne- narrative is necessary in order to try to allow people to buy into the narrative that they, that they want to counter and challenge people's ideas on what a man or a woman should be. Um, and based on that, use that to kind of form the core of the government case are probably like the useful pieces of framing and uh, and content that I think you can try to run on a government. But I do think there was also an info side that I forgot to include um, that makes it a little bit, a little bit up tilted. I think info side was reforming gender roles is an approach that emphasizes changing existing gender norms to better align with feminist values, e.g. real men express emotion. In contrast, deconstructing gender roles refers to the practice of rejecting gender norms entirely, e.g. there is no such thing as a quote unquote real man. So, I think that um, big thing to be concerned with uh, here is like not buying into like the real men express emotion narrative. Well, I think you can, but I think there's a few other things that you can also run that are that are better for gov uh, to say than that. And also, the info slide is pretty kind to op. I, I think. Anyone got anything else to add on this motion? Alrighty, let's head on to round five. Round five is a fun one. You are a progressive investigative journalist living in a recently democratized country in the global south. 
An election is upcoming where the ruling progressive party who enjoys vast popular support, including from you, a supporter of theirs, is being challenged by a far-right party. While reviewing documents that are exclusively in your possession, you find strong evidence of massive corruption by the ruling progressive part, e.g. bribe-taking, embezzlement, nepotism. Assuming nobody would ever find out, this house would destroy the evidence. So, what do you guys think about this motion? How are your cases? Stu and I loved this motion. We were opening up and we thought it was a fun but um, interesting political thought experiment, I think. And the immediate thing that we tried to identify in prep is why does a quote far right sort of this may perhaps even ultra right group exist and what we tried to say is that when you are experiencing corruption and nepotism and all of these negative things in a in a state that is newly democratized you're probably not going to have the best economy you're probably going to have things that um are, are that make people suffer in uh in, in this state and that is evident in the emergence of a far right group, because often far right groups feed off of uncertainty, i.e. they fill this void and serve as an explanation uh, for people to understand their suffering, even if that explanation is founded in nothing. Uh, there's many, like, obviously historical examples of this, but it's basically this idea that the far right group in this newly democratized country is telling people that they're suffering perhaps because of a minority, perhaps because of something else. And so we then took that frame and said, if the journalist then releases this information, what then happens? Does it empower the far right, far right group? Probably not, because then it tells people that there's an explanation for their suffering. It's because of corruption. It's because of nepotism. And that leads to a more moderate and sort of balanced approach where they use town halls and these newly democratic systems to, um, to actually push for more accountability as opposed to feed off of the very sensationalized, harmful, har uh, harmful problems that an ultra right or far right uh, emerging group could bring. I think the biggest weakness in our case, and something I kind of realized too late in prep, I like I tried to run it a bit in my speech, but enough time was just that we weren't treating it enough as an actor motion. So we were talking a lot about long term democratic outcomes for the country, which like if you're a progressive journalist, you probably do care about that, especially because like. If you have a more democratic country, there's probably more like journalistic rights for you. But the issue is that we weren't necessarily tying every impact we had back to like what you care about as a journalist. Um, and it, I think that made it more difficult for the judges to kind of weigh us in the round when the closing like the closing uh, debate was more about like what you care about as a journalist, like your direct interests. So I think if we had like connected it more to that, we'd probably weigh better in the round. Yeah, uh, I had a very, very interesting discussion, or I guess our room had a very, very interesting discussion with the judge, because this debate is not only about what is best for the country in terms of, you know, long-term stability, how this left-wing, like, very, very popular left-wing party is able to run the country and all that, but this debate, like, really takes place, like, down two roads, and the second road is about, you know, what is your actual interest as that journalist, right? And I asked the judge, is it basically an auto-loss for all op teams, if you're unable to prove that the journalist is willing to make this decision, if his safety is going to be endangered, right? Because the, our OG ran a very interesting case that, you know, these very, like, these uh, very popular governments 
are likely going to have lots of resources like uh, access to the military, right? So you're probably going to get chased down. You're going to get killed at some point. Uh, and they ran the case that as a journalist, like very, very specific case that as a journalist, you shouldn't make this decision. Whereas we on open opposition kind of just, you know, took the very, very squirrely approach as how has how put it. Uh, not she didn't put it as squirrely, but the, the approach where, you know, you can just say we're going to go to like the United States as a journalist. Right. And we're going, just going to release the information there or we're going to release this information anonymously. So in that way, you can basically evade all of that personal decision making. And then it becomes, you know, as a journalist, I'm very, very big fan of this this uh, left-wing party that is very popular. So I probably have some interest in wanting it to reform and become less corrupt and eventually run this country better. And in that way, I think you're able to kind of outframe the proposition on the idea that the journalist specifically wouldn't make this, make this decision and it just becomes as like, the debate just becomes what's best for the country in the long term. And it's pretty like easy to establish that a non-corrupt government is a good thing. Yeah, and like Will was saying, I'm obviously no judge, but I think it's about how you link it. Uh, for example, if you're saying that a progressive journalist probably doesn't want the rise of an ultra-right party in their country, you could probably say that's one of their vested interests. And if we can prove that it decreases that, then obviously the link is there. Um, I think on our side anyways, on OO, we tried to preempt some of that sort of heavy actor stuff. Um, they said that the journalist is going to be killed. And I think what we said was basically... Uh, if you're in a newly democratized country, people typically don't take kindly to tyranny from the government to that extent. Uh, you're just experiencing free speech, free media, things like that. If they see this information and then see the government kill the journalist, that probably is something that the old regime would have done. And then the people would get angry and probably use electoral systems to vote out the government. So we're kind of just saying the government doesn't really have an incentive to kill the journalist probably more so restricting the information. And then we run a we ran a separate point explaining how the information will reach the voters, irrespective of the government's attempt to restrict that information. Uh, but I definitely agree with Will in saying that there's definitely ways for opposition to win without debating super actor-heavy stuff, uh, kind of what we did, what CO did, and what Will did. For sure. And just one other thing I would add there is that the problem with the info slide is it says, you know, this party is highly popular. So... You can argue even on opposition that this party is never going to actually lose this election. And if they do, it's only going to be for one term. They're probably going to skid in power anyways. And in that way, you can really just frame the debate heavily in a way that I think this motion is very, very off heavy in my opinion. So it was lucky to draw OO for the round. Oh, sorry. I forgot I was going to say. Um, on CG, Liz and I just ran the argument about how this could impact your career because essentially when you release that information it is likely going to be traced back to you given that everything that you release online likely has a digital footprint and since these governments probably have a lot of control over media as well as the internet they can probably trace it back to you but essentially the impact was just that once you release that information you're no longer seen as a trustworthy person who won't release information that is confidential and this is really bad for your career because journalists rely on trust to get things like exclusive interviews with important figures or even get like access to audit logs into the future like to um, come up with these like articles um, to begin with. So that was our argument. Um, I don't think that the case itself was very strong impact, but I think it was a feasible impact. Um, I think what made our case the strongest, I think, was actually just um, the engagement with the other teams, because the actual impact of the case wasn't incredibly large. 
Another noteworthy thing I would say is I found it pretty funny. Crystal uh, ran as our CEO the argument that essentially, you know, if you release this information, probably going to go pretty viral, like viral on social media and around like media outlets. And the title of the extension and how she framed it, like the the actual label of the argument was like making stacks, as in you know, like making tons of money. And essentially, even if you do die, you can live like a good five years of your life just vacationing and like partying. Was the the CEO extension, which I thought was you know pretty funny and pretty notable. That is that is a really funny extension. Uh that that's some good stuff right there. Yeah, I think also as an investigative journalist, you can probably outframe some of the like safety stuff by talking about like you got into this role because you have a strong, um, you uh, you have a strong affinity and conviction for like journalism, the truth, getting stuff out there. That's what you care about most as a journalist. You actually don't care that much about dying. Um, it's not that important to you, but being able to maybe preserve your job or being able to make sure that you have political political speech um, and being able to continue to get more truth out there is probably something that's important to you. I think you could like link back to like if you die, you can't do any of that stuff anymore. Therefore, that's a pre- prerequisite to surviving. But that's like that's like one piece of mitigation um, you can do to uh, the government stuff about you might die um, that I think builds into maybe a useful case. Uh, it looks like how is a very a very uh, self centered journalist, and that's totally okay. I think I would be too. Um, Alrighty, any more comments on round five? Okay, round six. For the purposes of this debate, audit culture refers to a growing phenomenon in recent decades in which the use of indicators, measurements, and rankings have become central to both the internal management of public institutions and in the external representations of their quality, efficiency, and accountability to the public. This house regrets the rise of audit culture in public, or as I heard one person say, this house regrets the rise of accountability, so uh, or institutional accountability. Anyone want to start us off? Sure. Um, I would just like to start off with like a funny story about this motion. Um, Stu and I didn't really know how we were doing at the tournament. We knew we were doing pretty well, but we thought that this was a critical round to break to the semifinals. We thought that we had to take a one in this, basically, and we were CO. And we prepped the completely wrong side the whole time. <laughs> like, like I mean, our whole 15-minute prep and two minutes of the Prime Minister's speech, we were debating the complete opposite side. Yeah, uh, no, because we were... Oh, my God, we were sitting... So we were on CO, right? We prepped this case. I'm listening to the Prime Minister's speech to, like, start writing my whip. And because we're on CO and I'm listening to the Prime Minister, I hear the Prime Minister's first argument and I'm like, Dylan, why are we derivative of the Prime Minister <laughs> on closing opposition? So we're like, oh crap, like we prepped the wrong side. So then um, during opening half, we basically had just to just like make up a new extension. And I mean, we had to put complete trust in each other um, because we were not talking to each other. We just kind of looked at each other and said, yep, let's just go for it. We, we knew the basic idea. Uh, we flipped our other extension, just literally swapped the impact and maybe a, a mechanism here and there. Uh, but it definitely took a lot of uh, trust, I'd say, with my partner to execute that round. And we ended up taking a first place in that round, which was, I think, the most funny yet um, admirable story of our time at the tournament. And and just to put you in like the frame or like the head headset, not headset, headspace. head frame that we were in, whatever. Yeah. Um, 
I didn't even know what the opening government case was until they POI'd the case to Dylan's extension because I was so focused on like trying to make a new extension during the round that I couldn't even listen to either opening team. So I had to like figure out what the opening, like to whip the opening cases, I had to like listen to their POIs. Glad they helped yeah. POI your case. <laughs> exactly. I know I was so happy because one of their POIs was literally our main argument was blank. How do you engage with <laughs> oh, that? Oh, perfect. They spoon, they, spoon, they spoon fed it to us. <laughs> But it was funny. Everyone kept using GDP as an example of an audit indicator. Uh... And we're like, what? And I seriously think the reason why we're able to win is because I stood up there and said GDP is not an audit. <laughs> and I, 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 don't, I, don't th I don't even think I had to have an extension to win that round after I said that. But, you know, we still did. And, and our case was interesting. I, we basically said that in audits of public institutions, there are a select few that typically do very poor on audit scores. Uh, these are institutions that are inherently less efficient than some other ones, uh, like things like welfare institutions, healthcare, maybe things like education. And what we were saying is that, well, our uh, misprep was saying that because these score low, private companies have a unique weapon to advocate for things like privatization using these scores as sort of a tool for that. We then flipped that and said, actually, this is a weapon for things like uh, social movements, voters to have an easily accessible way to see the problems of underfunding. Uh, I, in my extension, I said it was underfunding that was the problem. These are also the institutions that get systemically less funding or funding that flip-flops between conservative and liberal governments like welfare. And that's sort of where the inefficiency comes from and makes voters more aware. Uh, it's funny because Stu typically, I thought because we didn't talk to each other in prep, that that would be the mechanism that Stu is going to run, that these institutions are underfunded because I, I, I find him to be a, a pretty left-wing guy. Stuart, on the other hand, in his whip, thought that I would run a more center, more neoliberal argument about that they're just misusing the funding and it's being taken by like private contractors and you need audits to make sure that the money is going to the right places. So there's a little bit of case tension based on where we thought we lied on, or lay on the political spectrum, but it worked out. So yeah, that was kind of our case in a nutshell. You know what? That's a pretty cool case, especially on closing opposition. Uh, anyone had thoughts on like the best government case you can run? I think Hal had a thought on it. Um, something also kind of funny happened in that round. So Liz and I had something bad that happened like right before the round. I can't really explain it, but like it kind of threw us off. Like big time and then we kind of also knew that we were already break open because some of the judges they gave feedback that gave us like quite an obvious picture as to what the call was um so we weren't too stressed that round and we gave not very good speeches and our case was not very clear also because our case was just there was a lot of missing holes and um, analysis in it but we didn't do good that round but it was okay um, I do think that the CO in our case, in our round, was actually, I, I really liked the case. So it was Will and Rafay, and I think Will can just explain what they ran. Um, but yeah, I thought the framing was quite good in their case. Yeah, so I actually, like, don't have very good memory of the case that we ran. I remember stuff that I brought up in the whip. Uh, but I think generally the extension that we gave was that on a culture in public has basically led to a lot more, not only transparency in terms of, you know, these kinds of statistics that have been released and, but it was generally like a developing country argument, right? Where, yeah, it comes, it came back to my brain. Um, 
in developing countries, right, there's lots of very, very limited resources. Uh, these governments don't have a lot of money that they can allocate into certain social programs or, you know, government institutions that they run. Therefore, audit culture is basically a way for these governments to, you know, see how their funds are being used different ways. Like, I can allocate this money to different employees or maybe this money is being over allocated. And it's essentially a way for governments to make their programs and like social stuff that they run a lot more efficient, which kind of separated us in the round because we had gone into prep thinking this motion was generally about, you know, metrics on employee efficiency and efficient, general efficiency of like funds. Whereas the debate was actually ran about like numbers of people who entered into hospitals as like a whole. So I think actually kind of misunderstanding the motion helped us out there because their extension did stand out quite a bit. Oh, I also yeah. think, oh so, do you, how do you want to? Oh, I'll just add something really quickly on the thing that we'll just talked about. Um, I think a really strong part of their extension was their framing as to why developing countries really need um these this audit culture so talking about how they have a very limited amount of resources and the way that they spend those resources then have to be much more like they have to be much more careful in the way that they spend those resources i think it was a good framing um and i think it was well analyzed yeah but still go on thank you well since dylan and i prepped the wrong side we did kind of have some ideas for the government <laughs> side um which we thought was opposition but basically we're going to run something along the lines of like one frame that there are good reasons for like some institutions to be inefficient but still worthwhile like if you think of welfare healthcare, these kinds of like government programs that like maybe aren't the most efficient are probably going to score low but like are still on net good for society and then our like more unique mechanism was like you probably have like private interests in the market are going to probably lobby the government to push for like more audits of institutions in which they want to further privatize if that makes sense so like if you have private healthcare companies and there's like more audit culture and more ability to audit government institutions easily they're probably lobbying politicians to like push for more audits on like public healthcare, for example so that they can they can point to it and be like public healthcare is inefficient so maybe we should like privatize it more so basically just like the idea of there being private interests who have a vested interest in showing inefficiency in government institutions yeah, and just one more thing to add on to Stu, something that I was thinking about <clears throat> sort of after the round. I think that there is room, like aside from all the gut points, to talk perhaps in, perhaps characterizing the invasiveness of audit culture and explaining that as a harm on workers, workers' mental health. Uh, I'm not an auditor, but I could probably imagine that if if the report is supposed to be very detailed and give a very accurate picture because you're paying a company to do that service, they're probably going to be on workers like a hawk, maybe watching them very intensely, uh, intense monitoring uh, that could perhaps have consequences for their career um, and just make going into work every day seem like a nightmare. Perhaps their bosses um, adding extra pressure on them to perform and look good. Uh, I, I know that's probably more of a minor point and something that would only really probably come out on the closing, but uh, that's just sort of a thought I had. Maybe it could even be used for reputation. I don't know if it's good enough for its own point, but just sort of thoughts about the round. No, nah, that sounds like a great case. I'm pretty sure that's a good case to run. That might be that might be the case to run. I don't know. Do you have something to say, Will? Oh uh, no, not much to add on government. I th I agree with what Dylan said. Okay, yeah, I think that I think that's a that's a lit case. I didn't think about that case. I think that I think that should be the whole case, especially on on OG or CG, honestly.
Uh, that sounds like one of the only good cases you can run, to be honest. Uh, so yeah, good stuff. Anyone got anything else to add on this motion? I don't know. I still don't know what an audit is. I'm uh, just gonna put it's, that it's out there. Fine. You don't need. You don't need to know. You came up with the right case. Okay. Boring motion. Uh, let's go on to semifinals. The semifinals is an info slide. The social model of disability seeks to redefine disability as largely being a result of society being designed to not meet certain people's needs. For example, the social model of disability would see a person in a wheelchair as disabled insofar as buildings are constructed without ramps and or elevators, and attributes mental health issues in large part to the pressures of capitalism, e.g. having to work long hours in order to survive. Motion is... This house regrets the focus of disability rights activists on promoting the social model of disability. So, what do you guys think about this motion? So, generally, I did not have much of a clue coming into this round as to what the motion actually entailed in terms of strategy and general content. But luckily for me, Rafay had lots of spec knowledge on this motion, and we also were very, very fortunate to pull closing both in the semis and finals. So we pulled closing opposition in this round and the extension that we ran was, you know, a lot of the time in this, both in front half, there was lots of discussions as to the future. So to an extent, both of the front halves kind of misframed the debate and took it in the wrong way when the debate was really a regrets motion, not to say that there weren't, it wasn't still like a good round of it in front of good cases. But, you know, to, you know, when the debate becomes about the long-term benefits of things, that's kind of where it's very, very easy for closing opposition to step in and say, you know, clarify, hey, you know, this is a regrets motion. We're talking about things that uh, the social narrative has brought up in the past that have been beneficial. And essentially the extension was, regardless of whether, you know, the harms that government might claim, at least uh, having the social narrative has led to more sympathy for disabled people in general and more agency for them uh in general as well uh and i i at least i thought my intro was very funny for this round because i did the the ceo whip and it was essentially you know panel opening government and closing government have been derivative of ceo's material in this debate uh because we talked about how you know they're not gonna be able to get any kind of sympathy or uh agency on their side of the house with under like the opposing narrative of you know, this is their issue for them. Like, this is their thing that they have to deal with. Uh, so I thought it was a pretty clever intro. The speech was not very good. But yeah, I'm interesting to hear how the, the other semis round went because I have heard some snippets of it, but not not too much. Yeah, well, that's, that's definitely interesting that you guys came up with that sort of retrospective case. Um, how you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think our round had uh, enough spec to do a retrospective i think we all stayed pretty much in the contemporary of uh, i think there was sort of an avoidance on the regrets part of the motion i think we kind of talked about it in a very practical contemporary sense uh, or at least that's kind of what i thought was happening in the debate um, just with the sort of impacts that everyone was going for uh, we were opening opposition and um, i give Stu 80 percent credit for coming up with this case because um, this was kind of his thing. But we talked about a simple perception argument, and we also talked about a intersectionality support from other movements point. And I'm sure Stu can elaborate on that. Well. Um, it's funny that you're giving me credit because I actually lifted our case from judges' feedback from the other round. 
because there was the feminism round, which like, even though it's about feminism, not disabilities, it's kind of like a similar motion. And basically in feedback, they were saying on opposition, you should run something about like intergroup cooperation, intersectionality, that kind of thing. So then I remembered that from that round. I'm like, okay, well, let's just do this in this round. So basically we ran that like, if you're able to, if your dis disability activism is also a critique of capitalism, you can work with other movements and not just in like a sense of like paying lip service or like appearing to be in solidarity, but rather things like using political infrastructure of other movements. So like even if the disability rights movement doesn't have massive political infrastructure, if they're working with like democratic socialists of America who have like a chapter in every town in the United States, that's a huge bump to their like ability to participate in politics, which then gets to the impact of like actually changing legislation to help people with disabilities. Um, and like, so the case was really, I think some teams took it in the sense of like the disability rights movement cares a lot about how dis like people with disabilities feel about themselves. But our case was very much about um, government accountability and getting like policy change. Yeah, that's a that's a pretty solid case. Yeah, we also did have some ideas about outward perception of disabled people. Um, just kind of taking the low-hanging fruit, I would say, of this motion and what the narrative brings and sort of how the disabled rights mo movement uh, goes about it. Sort of this idea that, um, you know, people in a wheelchair now feel uh, less baggage or less like it was their fault for getting perhaps in an accident or having, um, you know, as society would deem, the genetics to produce that sort of condition. Um, just levying that burden off of yourself and also the the term disabled having baggage associated with it no matter where you go as someone with disabilities we were trying to say that our side does kind of denounce that term and uh removes the idea that you are disabled by sort of sort of shifting blame and we sort of talked about uh the benefits of that from an optical perspective but also from an internal perspective i think that was the extent of the um interpersonal lens of our case one other thing I'd add uh, is me and our partner were thinking about how to run the, the prop case in this motion. And you can make a very interesting claim as to, you know, certain disabilities can actually conflict with each other, right? So if you're a deaf individual in maybe a school, having to have, you know, maybe the uh, the stream over the speakers or like whatever you call the, the dialogue over the speakers could also conflict with someone who has, uh, you know, sensory overload uh, disability, right? So different kinds of infrastructure that could be built for disabled people can conflict. And obviously it's not the strongest case. We thought it might be a cool extension that could have been running around, but. Yeah, that makes sense. I think I've also heard um, decent cases about how, like there are a bunch of cases where it literally isn't to do with society, right? So like some people have, um, some people who have lost limbs have like phantom pains, um, for example, or some people are like blind, right? And like, there's no amount of societal adaptation that will, that will make you like not blind or effectively not blind, right? Which means that if you try to advocate for that social model of disability, you're basically excluding the uh, excluding the emphasis or like you're maybe not fully excluding, but you're de-emphasizing those kinds of disabilities that people can have and you're not putting much focus towards solving them. Um, and that is probably particularly harmful because those people are probably the most marginalized or society, uh, where society actually can do the least to adapt um, and focus on their issues becomes worse and worse. So they have less and less support um, in society. And I think that 
that's a pretty good case that can be run. Um, that's the case that uh, Liz and Howe told me that they run, they ran. So um, that sounds pretty strong to me as well. If you're if you're looking for uh, a if you're looking for a good uh, gov case to run, yeah. But um, I think that this motion was at least interesting to watch and think about. Um, anyone have any final thoughts on it? I would just add that I think the info slide kind of confused the motion up a bit too, which seemed to be a common theme with the motions at Nats. Not to flame them, but uh, just something funny to think about. Yeah, the info slide, it's like, it's quote, too vague and too specific at the same time. Like it frames um, issues as like, uh, it frames mental health issues as like due to capitalism and that therefore that is why it is attributed to society rather than the people who have those issues. And like at that point, what are you really supposed to say against that? So, uh, yeah. Alrighty, let's go on to the final motion that we're going to discuss. Uh, and I'm really interested to hear about this because I haven't actually had much time to think about it. Lustration is a policy which involves the systemic removal and political exclusion, often without trial, of officials at all levels of the political system associated with former regimes and their political parties, e.g. officials associated with the communist parties in Central and Eastern Europe after the collapse of the Soviet Union. This process is normally conducted by the new, more democratic establishment. Motion is, this house believes that new democratic governments in post-authoritarian countries should adopt a lustration policy. Uh, yeah, I, I, I could talk first on this. Uh, Stu and I were opening government in the finals. And I think what set us apart from a lot of the other teams was our framing. My initial thought, and, and Stuart literally told me, I asked him about it, and he said, just just do what makes sense. You you just go for it. Thinking that our framing would be sort of simple and easy and everyone would agree on it. It, it, was, it was not agreed upon, and it was actually quite different from what everyone was saying. Uh, our framing was that lustration typically occurs with things like ministers because when you think of former governments like the nazis like the soviets the parliament did not hold a significant power in the country because it was mainly a sham because individual people that were quote elected often didn't have the power to influence any economic or political decisions it was mainly the ministers of divisions like agriculture and propaganda and anything else like that it was the guys uh, sort of at the top so you're not just kicking out you know the leaders of the government like the heads of state it's probably the you know 40 to 50 bigger more politically involved people that will go and that was contentious because a lot of other teams in the round talked about it from a smaller level i.e the member of parliament from a far eastern district should be illustrated as well whereas our team on opening government we tried to provide reasons as to why that wasn't necessarily the case, but I, I, I do think our case still worked under that frame. Um, but yeah, that was just off the off the start when discussing this motion, I, I just want to point that framing issue out in the round. And it was interesting that the judges bought uh, bought it. I mean, to me, that, so that framing sounds pretty good. Um, I think that there's a little bit of uh burden outlining that you would want to do um i think that you can probably say that like in the cases where 
it's not so like local ministers they probably didn't have much power anyways it's fine to remove them they can like be removed and then if they win an election afterwards they win the election they can just be there if they were truly the people that should be managing those places in the first place so i don't know i think that the burden is actually on op to show that this should not be used in many cases and government just needs to show that this should be used in many cases probably and that's how you want to frame the round yeah, and, and just sort of to elaborate on the opening government case a bit, our first point was on, on popular leaders. And that's to say that we characterize what a newly democratized post-authoritarian regime looks like. Uh, when, when you take over a, a former authoritarian regime, it looks like people mobilizing in pretty remarkable ways to take them over. Things like unions, strikes, uh, violence in some cases, things like riots. It's, it's a lot of remarkable... Uh, demonstrations that that lead to their downfall and a part of that is very sensationalized rhetoric coming from the masses about certain figures like joseph goebbels of the nazi party or even the leaders themselves because those types of higher ranking figures not just the head of state are hated in society like they're being touted as genocidal maniacs and killers and people that are just awful right so when you overthrow the government and when you now are in a position of power it's politically unfeasible to have these people in government and have people uh, subscribe and trust a system where they're allowing those people who have so much rhetoric and baggage around them to even have a chance at staying in office because of course it takes time for a system to develop democratic traditions institutions so even having them there during that transition it, it just won't work for a democracy long term and then quickly on our second point, uh, we talked about uh, political misalignment and sort of getting a mandate. That's to say that often uh, when you overthrow an authoritarian regime, you have opposing groups. Like in the Spanish Civil War, you had uh, people like the communists aligned with the moderates, aligned with the anarchists to overthrow the main fascist group, which they failed. But, you know, it, it's kind of a common thing that you see politically misaligned groups unifying together. But when the government goes, what's the next move? And we said that lustration is really the only thing left that's actually binding these politically misaligned groups from hating each other, from sort of distancing themselves and developing a negative relationship. And we said that that push of unity is really the only way to guarantee long-term stability, where like a communist looks at their more moderate neighbor and, say, and starts to look at them with, uh, with a more friendly eyes more friendly eyes because they unified in this lustration process that's kind of the og case uh, i hope i didn't talk too long about it i guess here's where i'll add my thoughts on our cg case so uh to an extent we agreed with dylan and Stu when they ran the claim that you know oftentimes there are going to be very very notable individuals who everyone knows that they've committed hate crimes and they're you know the ministry the minister of these kinds of divisions right and then O comes up and they give the case that, well, you know, we can just have public trials where these individuals who are most notable can be held on, you know, to account by the public itself. And therefore, you're going to get all these benefits of more you know, trust in the government, etc. Uh, so how we distinguished ourselves on CG was we essentially claimed that basically on either side of the house for OG and OO, they were deadlocked on the most notable individuals getting punished because it's very likely in OO, you know, these very notable people who have committed war crimes are going to get punished under uh, public trials. And an OG, these individuals are going to get lustrated. They're going to be, you know, it's going to be pretty well known that these individuals are lustrated anyways. So the case we ran was essentially, and I came up with this illustration and I've been like teased for a while about it now, but uh, with quotation marks wrapped in the walls, like individuals who didn't 
uh, directly commit any kinds of war crimes. They didn't directly implement public policy, but they're just, you know, very, very, you know, less notable bureaucrats who are still part of the government. Because, you know, in authoritarian governments, it's often, you know, oftentimes you have very, very unnecessary amounts of bureaucrats who exist within the government. So these are individuals who you would never be able to hold accountable under public trials. And in a world, you could say that's a knife for OG. The judge, we talked to the judges afterwards and they didn't said they didn't think it was. But then essentially the claim there is because these individuals can stay, you know, under government, under both OO and OG's world, uh, it is very likely that, or sorry, under OO's world, it is very likely that these individuals will then be able to obstruct policies uh, and they're still going to, you know, carry over their ideologies from running under these authoritarian regimes and use those ideologies to, you know, bureaucratically prevent policies from going through, through parliament or whatever, in very, very subtle means. Because again, they're smaller individuals, they're very, very less well-known. Uh, and I think to an extent, the case was pretty effective in the round. Um, ultimately, you know, the framing between CG and OG, uh, I did receive feedback from the judges that in the whip, I didn't spend enough time differentiating between OG and CG, but I'm very curious to hear uh, maybe Howe's thoughts or other people's thoughts on, you know, the the call in the round. I'm eating right now. Well, I think, I have no no thoughts, and I'm deep, but like, uh, what, I, what, what I will say is that like, Liz and I's confidence in our case just decreased exponentially after talking to more people like first when we finished our speeches we were like okay that was pretty good and then like we talked to like some people and they're like okay it was not as good and then like we talked to other people and it was like no confidence you know but yeah that was that was pretty much what happened for us oh right the case um the case on co that we ran was that basically when you have frustration and there's a mass unemployment of officials, you then incentivize those officials, even the lower ranking ones, to like collectivize and radicalize in like to form their original like group. And this is especially likely with the characterization that a lot of these countries just came out of a revolution and like and still have active wanting groups that are able to help them in the process of getting to group again. Um and it, it was mostly just like our case was mostly like framing as well as weighing. So we outframed the cases in which there would be mass public unrest because in those cases, those officials will likely be taken out of office in the very first place because there's generally a lot of unrest when these people have justified reasons to hate those pol like politicians or these officials. So through the process that OO already outlined in a counterfactual, it is likely that they're going to be taken out through the trial process. And then we talked mainly about like the middle rank to lower official, um, they still have a job, so they still have a stable uh, source of income. And like adapting to the needs of society currently is much more strategic for them in a way because it doesn't cost them or risk them imprisonment if they had to be radicalized. Also, just because they already have a stable source of income and it's an easier way to maintain the power that they already have in comparison to losing their job and then risking um, being in prison and stuff like that. I think the largest weakness in our case, like looking back on it, was that we had mechanisms. It was just a very complex case and there was a lot of different layers to it. It was a very tight case, but the issue was that we didn't actually make it very clear what the strongest and most important mechanisms were. And so the judges or the panel 
didn't really buy the end impact of the case because they couldn't understand how we got to the impact, even though the mechanisms were there. But I think it's fair. I think we should have made it. But yeah, that was, I think, what actually happened. Did you end up talking to the judges afterwards on their on their reasoning? Yeah, we did. Um, it was it was not it, it was like a fine discussion. It wasn't super super fruitful, um, which is fair because I think a lot of the judges didn't have their notes and it was kind of a thing that just passed them after award ceremony. Um, yeah, we asked them. Apparently, they're like pretty. I trust. Do you know who the three one split was for? Anyone here? Uh, I think the one split was for CG. Ah, okay, very nice. Yeah, the split was for CG, our team. Yeah, um, I just wanted to mention something that I think is was important in that round, and I think it helped us on opening government because we could kind of just say it and then sit down and just kind of let it coast throughout the debate, which I think helped us. It's this idea that we weren't. Our case wasn't dependent on whether or not we got people out of the office because, yeah, like we're probably going to get them out of the office through trials or through lustration anyways. What we wanted to say is that the, the process and the way in which you actually kick them out is like the, the ultimate thing in this debate that's going to inspire things like the unity we talked about in our second point and is really the only way to do it um, with with like our first point on sort of this idea of unpopular leaders and the baggage that's associated with them and how people won't participate uh, democratically if if they're still there. And, you know, with our frame and sort of that principle and practical in a way, I think it kind of allowed us to just ride out some of the, uh, some of the clash in the round. But I, I'm not, I, I didn't really follow a lot of that because I'm not really specialized in that. That's more of a stew thing. But, but yeah. Very nice, very nice. Sounds like a pretty, pretty interesting motion with a reasonable amount of depth. Um, though, it's yeah, figuring out what the what the alternative is is a little bit, little bit strange because it then seems like you're just trying to defend that you shouldn't get rid of people from like a Soviet or a former Nazi regime or something like that, and that seems like not the best idea, uh, on opposition. So, probably a bit of prop leaning here, uh, as well. Anyone got any final things to add about the uh, finals? Yeah, I just want to say that every case was fantastic in that round. Like, that was one of the most enjoyable rounds that I have personally ever participated in, but also watched, like, other people talk. Like, I I definitely learned so much from that round, and it was just, it was fantastic to be in. Yeah, I thought for like the first finals round that CSDF has put on in a long time, like being fortunate enough to be in the round itself, but also like it was a very, very high quality finals. I don't know if they ran the semis motion, like swapped the motions for semis and finals, it would have been as high quality. Uh, there was the funny thing with like Kevin Chen speaking very, very close to the microphone at finals. Uh, and then Crystal coming up and basically apologizing for Kevin. <laughs> but overall, I thought the, the finals was, again, really, really high quality. That's super wonderful. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I I think the finals was really wholesome. Um, I, it was not my favorite round that we debated over Nats, but I think the fact that like everyone that was in that finals were like people that I just met and became friends with, or like people that I, met before and with. I think it just was a very nice and wholesome environment, and it made me really enjoy it, even though like we didn't win, but like regardless of who won, I'm still really happy. Um, and there was no like 
it was like a very wholesome experience, you know, regardless of the outcome. That is really wonderful. Wonderful to hear. I had a great time at Nats too, getting to see all you guys, getting to see people in person. Uh, hopefully we'll get a chance to do that again. I've heard that CNDF Nats is in like Alberta or something, so maybe not then, but some other time. Uh, yeah, all right. I think we'll wrap it up here. I've kept people for like 90 minutes now, way more than 90 minutes. So um, uh, we'll leave it off here. If people have any shout outs to anyone, uh, you can give them right now. Anyone, any of you guys would like to shout out before we end off the podcast? Shout out to Joseph for being so consistent with the podcast and also judging at Nats being one of our favorite McGill judges amongst others, of course. Oh, thank you very much, Hal. Anyone else? Uh, Stu's going to have to help me out here, but shout out to that one team. Stu's going to have to fill in the name that was with us for th- four rounds at nationals that was crazy we literally hit them every single round shout out to them it was, it was fun it was kaylee and i forget who she was debating with but we hit kaylee three rounds in kaylee and calvin wow calvin kaylee and calvin yeah it was crazy it was so fun though we i felt like we got to know them through that we also hit teams continuously throughout the tournament i think we hit like eric and jinju at least three times it do be oh, lonely I- at the top yeah I would also like like to shout out uh, Moise for chaperoning from Saskatchewan, and then also all the sauce debaters like Isabel Sahazro, my old partner Rohan, uh, and, like Lucas, Samuel, Jody Amanoff. So, yeah, thanks for thanks for having me. Yeah, it's really cool to talk to people from uh, from from Saskatchewan. I didn't know there was much there was a very large circuit there. Happy to talk more about it uh, if you got some time. How are you gonna say something? Yes, I was gonna shout out my chaperone too. I forgot. Uh, favorite chaperone at that tournament uh his name is mr williams he's the really tall guy who's white very nice nice guy yeah we also had a tall white guy chaperone uh his name is mr briquette uh shout out to him for supporting us being there and also for eating all of my food uh it was it was great to eat on an empty stomach or debate on an empty stomach Perfect, perfect. Shout out to all the white chaperones in debating. You help make nationals possible. For real. Alrighty. Thanks, everyone, for coming on. I really appreciated having you guys on. Shout out to you guys. Uh, and thanks for an excellent discussion. Um, I think we'll call it here. Thanks very much for coming. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And uh, we will see you guys on the next episode of the BDD Podcast.